0: How should we respond to our sin? How does God respond to our sin? How should we respond to our sin? How does God respond to our sin? If you were here last week, we were looking at James chapter 3, and two verses stuck out to me. In verse 2, it said, We all stumble in many ways. And as we were looking at the taming of the tongue... James reminded us in verse 8 that no human being can tame the tongue. How did you guys go last week at taming your tongue? I don't know about you, but I found it to be true that indeed no human being can tame the tongue. I stumbled and failed even after hearing about the importance of taming the tongue. What do I do with that? What does God do with that? How do we move forward in light of our sin? These are the questions that James chapter 4 addresses. And friends, the good news and the big idea of today's Bible passage is found in verse 6. It says that God gives more grace. This is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. So please join me in prayer now as we humble ourselves before him. Our Father, we do praise you for all that you have done in your Son. We thank you that you give more grace, that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. We pray now that we would humble ourselves before you and we would so learn from your word in a way that our lives would be changed for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open to James chapter 4. In a second, I'm going to read for us again verses 1 through 5. And I want you to be thinking about this question. What picture does it paint of the recipients of this letter? What can we learn about the people that James is writing to from the first five verses? I'm going to read from verse one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? What sort of picture does this paint of the believers that James is writing to? It it seems to me to be a deeply broken picture. Did you notice what was happening in the hearts and lives of his people? In verse 1, we learn that they are a people who are fighting and quarreling we also learn that they are being led by and are in a losing battle to their sinful desires. In verse 2, we learn that they are a people who are killing. Now, most probably this doesn't mean literally taking one another's life, but killing according to James's brother Jesus. That in their anger and slander towards one another, they are a people to be held responsible for killing. We see in verse 2, that they are a people who are coveting. They are a people who are forsaking prayer. In verse 3, we see even when they do pray, they are praying with wrong motives. Even in prayer, they are being led by their selfish ambition for their own pleasure. And thus God does not grant their requests in prayer. And we come to verse 4. And here James gives us his his own verdict. One that would have undoubtedly cut the recipients to the core. In verse 4, James says, you adulterous people. Here, echoing the, the cries of the prophets who spoke against Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. And James says this to these new covenant Christians. That because of their friendship with the world and the things of the world, they are an adulterous unfaithful people who are at risk of becoming enemies of God if they continue in their friendship with the world. James really does paint a broken picture of a broken people who are seemingly failing to live out the gospel of grace that they have received. And it's not even just that the people are broken, but we see that this situation devastates God It says in verse 5 that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. God isn't absent from this situation. No, he longs that this might not be the case. He jealously longs for his spirit to be at work in the hearts and lives of his people. That they might love him and love others. It's a grim picture. It's a distorted picture and a broken picture of believers who are struggling to live out their faith. So what does James say to these people? What what is a possible solution or remedy? What is a way forward for these broken believers? The answer, the foundational principle and the key to this passage, I think, is found in verse 6. James says to these broken believers, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives us more grace. It's important to note here that James emphasizes more grace. He knows that these believers have already received a measure of God's grace. Almost certainly here referring to them receiving the message of the gospel. The good news of the undeserved kindness of God in Christ Jesus. That while we and they were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in our place that we might be restored to God. They have already received this measure of God's amazing grace, his undeserved kindness to them. And here James says to these broken believers, God gives more grace. He will indeed oppose the proud. He will resist and judge those who have chosen the praise and the ways of this world. But to those who humble themselves, And again, realize their great rebellion against God. He will give more grace. He will show favor to the humble. You see, our God gives not just saving grace, but changing grace. He gives more grace. Grace that in the kindness of God would change the life of these believers. The kindness of God that they might cease fighting, Cease killing, cease coveting, and cease friendship with the world and be on about living out the implanted word in them. God gives more grace to the humble. And in verses 7 to 10, James will tell us exactly what to do in light of our God giving this grace. He will tell these believers exactly how to apply this passage. From verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead of submitting to the devil, instead of submitting to their sinful, selfish desires to follow the ways of this world, they are called to submit to God, to acknowledge and to live with his reign and rule over their lives. And then we come to verse 8. Isn't verse 8 just remarkable? We've heard in so many ways how these believers have fallen short. We've heard of their destructive relating to each other and their friendship with the world. He's just called them an adulterous people, an unfaithful people, enemies of God. And look here what James says in verse 8. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. James doesn't say to this broken people, you're beyond repair. He doesn't say that you've crossed the line one too many times and you ain't coming back now. No, he calls this people to draw near to God. Not not to run from him in their sin, but to come to him. It's like what we heard in in the reading from Hebrews chapter 4. We are reminded that we have a great high priest in heaven, Jesus interceding for us. And in verse 15, it reminds us that Jesus knows of our weakness. In fact, it says that Jesus empathizes with our weakness and he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus knows of our great depravity. Jesus knows how sinful we truly are. And in light of this, in light of our great high priest, Jesus interceding for us, in light of Jesus knowing the depth of our weakness, the author of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is similar to what we see taking place in James chapter four, verse eight. James has hammered them on their sin, but, but in light of this, he doesn't tell them to run away. He says, humbly draw near to God because he gives grace to the humble. That if they draw near to God, he will come near to them. Oh what grace. God coming near to them again. Now it is worth noting that this is not to disregard the seriousness of their sin. James is clear. If they continue in their friendship of the with the world, they will become enemies of God. They will either be saved or destroyed. And there are many things that these believers are doing that God hates. And here James is calling. James is pleading with these believers to come to God. Come to him in all of their sin, in all of their weakness, in earnest, heartfelt repentance and dependence on him. In verses eight and nine, it says this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Their sin is no laughing matter. That they're not to be content in continuing in the ways of this world. That their brokenness and their love of the world is no cause for joy. They are to mourn over their sin. They are to grieve and wail at what has occurred and to realign themselves with the gospel as they come humbly before God and find grace in their time of need. In verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up because God gives grace to the humble. Point three, last point. Grace lived out. Now, initially, uh, when Ian had sort of done the breakup for James and given me this passage I was frustrated I thought what does verse 11 and 12 have to do with the rest of the passage that there's enough work in the first 10 verses it didn't seem as relevant to everything else that was going on and I thought Ian just didn't want to preach on it did he (laughs) but what I think that these two verses draw our attention to is grace lived out in the context of community That if these believers will truly humble themselves before God in light of their sin and receive his grace, that grace will change the community that they're in. James says in verse 11 and 12, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law... You are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't slander one another. Don't continue in sin. Don't continue to use your tongue to tear down this community. James reminds them that they're all going to stand and give an account before God, that that he alone can save and destroy, that he is the lawgiver, that he is the judge, and they and we are all in need of grace, that if they come to him humbly in prayerful repentance and dependence, if they receive his grace, then they're called to live it out to live it out in the way that they are relating to each other, not fighting and quarreling and slandering, but building each other up as they all come under the authority of the one true lawgiver and the one true judge. And I think that the reason James includes these two verses here is to show the reality that that if they do humble themselves before God and know that he truly is the one who can save and destroy and in that they receive his grace, it will extend to the community around them. Grace lived out in the context of community. Well, if you've been struggling to pay attention so far, I understand. But here's the Sparknote summary. We've seen in verses 1 to 5 of a desperately broken people. We've seen that James is convinced that God gives more grace. That he will give grace to those who come to him in humble repentance and dependence. And we see in verses 11 and 12 that this grace will then be lived out in the context of that community. Well, so what? What does that mean for us here at St. Matt's? James isn't writing directly to us. Are we coveting and killing? Are we fighting and quarrelling? Are we, as James describes, an adulterous people? The reality is that I don't know the complexity of your own context. It's obvious that I don't know the areas that you might be falling short in. I'm not with you all the time. I don't get to see what you say and what you do and what you watch. And you don't get to see what I say and what I do and what I watch. But let me share with you probably the deepest struggle I've had this year with sin in my own life, in my own context, and how eventually God's grace has abounded. This struggle of mine came to a climax at the end of a youth camp that I was invited to speak on earlier this year. I'd been invited to go and give five Bible talks at this camp and I was really excited about it. I was prayerful and I'd absolutely spent myself in preparing for this camp. I hadn't really done anything like it before and I'd already been dealing with some sort of complex and draining pastoral situations with my role here. I was getting used to leading a team, to preaching regularly, to starting new D-teams and keeping the ones that we have going. Trying to look at what's coming ahead after this camp and look to the term two and I'm feeling exhausted. But I had worked hard and I had got these talks done Now, God was gracious in spite of the weakness that I'm about to share with you. Two young people did make a decision to follow Jesus. But here's why I'm sharing this story with you. At the end of the camp, when we're all saying our goodbyes and we're applauding the camp directors and we're applauding the camp cooks, I was standing there. And all that I was thinking of and all that I was longing for was my applause. I wanted recognition. I'd worked hard and I had spent myself for this. I wanted people to see and recognize my contribution as if the gospel and God's grace wouldn't have abounded had I not been there. I was longing for the praise of men that my name would be known. And this is really the opposite of gospel ministry. It is adulterous. It's following the desires of the world for recognition and status. Instead of longing for the name of Jesus to be honoured and treasured, instead of rejoicing in God's goodness and grace and his work to save, I was much more concerned with the narrative of my influence in ministry, that my name would be known. And in this moment, as I was standing there longing for my applause, it hit me like a ton of bricks you see a few weeks prior to going on this camp i'd been catching up with andrew during our regular mts sort of training time as i complete my apprenticeship and i'd shared with him an area of sin in my life that i was really struggling with and i will never ever forget what he said to me he looked at me and he said josh you get too obsessed with that area of sin in your life you have a far deeper problem the way that you talk about life and ministry shows that you are far more concerned about your narrative than God's. He said, you can tell me that you believe the sovereignty of God all you want, but I don't see it in the way that you are talking or living. At the time, I thought, you know what? He's an older Christian. I want to listen to him, but a bit harsh. (laughs) But I hadn't recognised and seen in my life the depth of what he was saying. And it was at that moment in the camp, a few weeks after where it all sunk in, and I could see clearly that I was far more concerned about myself than about Jesus and his cause. You know, this moment is just one example of my many weaknesses. And we would be here for weeks if I was to share them all with you. But as I reflect on this moment, I can see myself in a similar position to the believers that James is writing to. A a broken people, fallen from grace and following the ways of the world, failing to live out the glorious gospel that they have received. Friends, the good news is that what we see in James 4 is that God gives grace to the humble. In light of their sin and in light of our sin, he calls us to come to him for grace that will save us and grace that will change us. I found myself after that camp, falling to my knees in prayer. Before most of the D-teams I'd lead or the talks that I'd give at youth, I would be confessing my sin. I'd be grieving over my heart, my pr- the pride of my heart. Trusting the perfect blood of Jesus washes me clean and pleading that he might give me a heart of humility and a heart that rejoices, not when I have success in ministry, but a heart that rejoices when Jesus is treasured above all else in the hearts and lives of his people. If you know me well, you know I still struggle with this. I often still have to check my heart and I wrestle with pride. But in the kindness and grace of God, he's slowly but surely grown me. And he's certainly grown my dependence on him. God gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, I I can't claim to know the complexity of your own context. I don't know everything about your family life, your work life, your private life. I don't know what areas in your life might be indicative of friendship with the world and enmity against God. But this I do know, that God gives grace to the humble. Whatever it is in your context, in your struggle and fight against sin, humbly draw near to God and find grace in your time of need. And I think it would be helpful for us to to take stock of our lives, to think through some of the key relationships we have and the key areas of struggle of sin it could be that you're causing unnecessary grief to your spouse, fighting and quarreling with them or with other family members as a result of your own selfish ambition. It could be that the primary thing you are striving for and giving all of your energy towards is building your kingdom and career here on earth. It could be coveting and longing for the possessions the position and the power of others. It could be a failure to tame the tongue, indulging in gossip at work or gossip in the family. It could be laziness. It could be watching TV shows and movies that God absolutely hates. Or like me, it could be a prideful heart. How are we to respond to our sin? How does God respond to our sin friends what we see in James chapter 4 is that God gives more grace we are to respond not by ignoring our sin and pressing on with our lives as though nothing had happened but we are to come near to God draw near to him in heartfelt repentance and dependence on him trusting that his grace and his grace alone will lead us home. And he will give more grace. He will draw near to you. He will lift you up because God gives more grace. He opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. So one final really practical, tangible application is, I have a suggestion. Find 15 minutes in your week. Wherever it is in the week, find 15 minutes. If you're married, maybe do it with your spouse and take the time, guard that time above all else. Make sure it's locked in your calendar each week and come to God. Draw near to him in prayer. Reflect on the week, reflect on our failures and come to God and find grace in your time of need. I'm going to pray that we do that now. Our Father, we do praise you that you give us more grace. You know how truly sinful and wretched we are, how we have strayed from your ways. And Father, we come to you and ask that your grace would abound in our life. And we praise you that you love to give it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.